from the rose-covered studios of PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another overfed episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Is it possible to have too much organic matter in your soil? On today's show, we'll discuss what to do when soil test results go rogue. Plus, we look forward to International Compost Awareness Week, May 5th through the 11th, with a close look at the wide range of materials you can buy in bulk for your lawn and garden. And lots of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and seriously sedate somnambulations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you adding organic matter to your hybrid teas. Right after this. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 at the PPNL Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA. I am your public radio and television host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, we got a double-barreled compost session for you in honor of the upcoming International Compost Awareness Week. We're going to have some people in who will show us what the different bulk soils and compost you can get at your local garden center look like, what they're good for, how they're made. And at the end of the show, we will answer the question, can you have too much organic matter in your soil? But right now, it's time for some of your organic phone calls at 833-727-9588. Diane, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. Well, thank you, Diane. Where are you? I am in Ringo's, New Jersey. Not a single Ringo, but more than one Ringo, right? Yes. All right. What can we do for Diane in the Garden State? little background. We live in a forest with a deer population. Mm-hmm. About 30 years ago, my husband built an electric deer fence to enclose about one and a half acres. Okay, very good. Our, our ground covers, hostas, hollies, winterberries, rhododendrons, and yews have thrived. Yeah, Outside the fence, only large trees and multiflora rose survive. God, if they could only eat the wild rose, too, it would almost be worth it. <laughs> A couple of months ago, unknown to us, the fence wires were without juice, and deer have moved in. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, this is Jurassic Park, right? The electric fence is down. (laughs) Our numerous spreading ewes are about four feet tall and about seven feet in diameter. The deer think they're candy. Yeah. The branches are stripped. The four-foot branches are almost without needles. The power is restored, and we plan to improve the fence design. Okay. Do you th- I want to but you think there are deer hiding on your property like they're in the shed playing cards? <laughs> I want to prune the ewes. They've gotten very rangy, but I do not know how much I should take off a four-foot-long branch. Okay. So one thing I want to suggest to you is now that your electric fence is operational again, this is the perfect time to train deer to stay away from your area because this is when the new deer, the young deer, are learning where and how to browse. So what I suggest is uh, sometime about a month from now, you turn off the fence and you go all around the fence putting on strips of aluminum foil that are coated with peanut butter and do as much of the fence as you can and then turn it back on. The deer will be attracted by the peanut butter, they will lick it, they'll get a shock, and then researchers have assured me that they will imprint on what they're seeing at that moment in front of them. You know, there'll be a big tree here, a grain silo there, a house here, something like that. And when they came into the same visual focus, maybe days, weeks later, they'll have a flashback that this is a bad place. And as you note, there's plenty of things in the woods for them to destroy, so they'll go away. That's how farmers actually use their electric fences. They don't keep them on 
all summer long because, like me, they're always getting shocked by them. So yes. they'll kind of train the new deer in the spring, and a lot of times it's safe to turn that fence off. Now, I, I obviously don't suggest that you do that, but I think you'll improve uh, the respectability you get from the deer by doing the baiting thing before you turn okay. it on. Hey, one month from now, peanut butter on foil. Yeah, you know, we used to say tin foil, you know, mm -hmm. but, you know, obviously <laughs> they, they haven't made tin foil for a while. Great suggestion. Use um, are really aggressive regrowers, as you probably know from just having them outside. So um, you want to you want to uh, prune them to make them more full again, right? Yes. So what I what I suggest in a situation like this is you wait until the new growth really begins to aggressively appear in the spring. You wait another two weeks. And then you go out there, and instead of trying to do it all at once, you use hand pruners to take off small amounts and shape it. And you continue to do this once a week until we get to, say, the 1st of July. You will always make a better-looking shape by taking off small amounts on a regular basis than you will trying to go out and hack away at it. That's when you see gardeners out at their uh, at their plants with duct tape and super glue and a statue of the Virgin Mary because they took <laughs> off too much and they realize the poor thing doesn't have a chance now. Okay, uh, if I were to take off the maximum until by by July, could I reduce it by from four feet to two feet, or would that be far too much? The the book says one-third of the plant size in any given year. So, you know, and if you really like these plants, um, it would be worth your while to spread it over a two-year period. You may find that by this kind of pruning that you'll get the look that you really want in that first year. See, pruning stimulates growth. If most people in America use it to try to limit the size of plants, whereby most people in Europe use pruning to make plants grow more aggressively. So by doing this little bit of pruning once a week, every week, you're really telling that you to put on as much good new growth as possible, much more than it would do if you tried to do it all at once. Hey, Mike, I'm energized. All right. All right. Good luck to you, Diane. 833-727-9588. Seth, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thanks, Mike. Well, thank you, Seth. Where are you, man? I'm in Kempton, Pennsylvania. Kempton, Kempton. Um, help me out. It's just north of Kutztown. Oh, okay. Very good. Um, what can we do for Seth in Kempton? So my question is about praying mantises in the garden, mm -hmm. and I've always uh, been under the impression that praying mantises are a great thing to have around the garden mm -hmm. because they are you know, voracious predators of, of pest insects, and I know that you can buy you know, egg cases for praying mantises in garden centers. Um, and uh, recently, I've transitioned from mostly growing vegetables to growing more uh, native plants and flowers. Mm -hmm. uh, with the goal specifically of providing habitat for native wildlife, like birds and, and insects. And praying mantises. And, <laughs> you know. and, and praying mantises, indeed. Um, so last year we had quite a few mantises in the garden, and I, I noticed some of them would, you know, set up shop right next to a flower and would just, you know, take insect after insect as they came in to, to you know, collect nectar from the flowers. And um, so this spring, as I've been clearing out the garden and, preparation for, for, for the growing season, I've been finding a lot of egg cases um, that were laid by last year's mantises. And so as I've been collecting them, I've been wondering what, what to do with them. And, you know, specifically, I, just from my, my internet research, it seems like those egg cases don't belong to the native mantis that we that's do correct. have in the area. Well, um, that's questionable. Um, okay. Many years ago, uh, the Chinese mantis was imported uh, for pest control. But mantises are not considered beneficial insects. They are, as you say, voracious predators, 
and the Chinese mantises are felt to have almost completely wiped out the native strains. They, they attacked their own, so to speak. So mm-hmm. mantises are indiscriminate. They are known predators, for instance, of hummingbirds. Uh, many people have problems with praying mantis hanging around their hummingbird feeders because that's, that's the size they like, a lot of protein in that mm-hmm. little bird. But, you know, they, uh, first of all, one thing I want to say, obviously this is a sign that you have a very healthy garden, that you have this much life going on in there. That's good. But, but yes, they are not considered beneficial insects. They are predator insects, like spiders. They will do a great job of pest control, but they will also take bees and butterflies and insects that you want around. And it sounds like they really like it in your garden. So you must have a lot of pollinators, butterflies, a lot of insects hanging around. I, I do, I do, and and. Um... You know, and, and that's what I want to promote. So, so it sounds like you'd recommend then taking these egg cases and, and disposing of them, or, or or at least keeping them out of a garden. Well, let's where go, my real goal. Is, let's yeah. let's let me ask you one more question. Do you have yeah. any pest problems on your new style of plantings? Not not really. Not that I've noticed. Okay, so I know. In my vegetable garden, actually, you know, it's funny. I think this is probably a good year for them. For the first time in a long time, I found three big egg cases out there. So you can't send them to me. I already i am going to have plenty. <laughs> and I'm going to keep them in my vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. So um, do you know people who have just strictly vegetable gardens? I do. And that was my first thought was to, was to give them to those folks. Um, but then I was even wondering, you know, given that, you need insects, obviously, around in, in a vegetable garden to pollinate your, you know, fruiting plants. Whether it, you know, it's even even a net a net benefit to have the, you know, mantises around if they're potentially taking, you know, bees and wasps and flies that are that are pollinating your, you know, your fruiting plants. Well, I, you know, personally, if I were a gardener near you, I would say, and if I didn't have my own egg cases, I would say, yeah, give me an egg case and I'm going to try it. And then we'll make our decision as to whether they're eating enough of the right things to really count. Another thought Mm -hmm. just occurred to me. Um, You might be able to delight school teachers by giving them the egg cases. If they had like aquariums or even better wire cages, the kids in the schoolroom could watch the mantises emerge from the egg cases, and then, you know, maybe you'd keep them alive till the end of the school year, you would go to a reptile store and buy them crickets. You know, that seems mm-hmm. to be the big thing. And the kids could see these, because they are marvelous insects. They are some of the most amazing insects on our planet. So They are, yeah. No, I, I agree. And I, I had that thought, too. I, I think that's a great idea. I was thinking regardless, I'd hold on to at least one just mm-hmm. so that we could watch them because it is really one of the most incredible, incredible animals you can see. And if there's any organic, uh, either farms or large plantings near you, of crops like corn or soybeans or wheat, these things are mm-hmm. not insect pollinated. Um, uh, praying mantises in a cornfield, for instance, would be a tremendous help uh, against... Mm. Uh, against the moths that lay the, uh, the eggs that turn into caterpillars that attack corn from so many different levels. So there's some mm-hmm. places where, you know, where wind pollination or just there's no pollination um, happening, you know, where they would be totally beneficial. Okay, great. Well, that's perfect. I'll, I'll, I'll follow that advice. That's really great. All right. Thank you, Seth. Okay, thanks so much, Mike. Take care. You too.
Well, things are finally heating up outside, and gardening is great. The flowers are blooming, the veggies are ripening, and all sorts of problems are coming up, aren't they? That's why you need to call 833-727-9588 and ask me, your host, Mike McGrath, what to do on the next You Bet Your Garden. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that your next chance to catch me dishing the dirt in person will be at the Loving Our Earth Expo at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Exton, PA on Saturday, May 4th. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet because we'll be right back to show you the difference between mushroom soil, compost, premium compost, and actual organic compost. And of course, more of your actual phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, coming to you from PBS 39 in the beautiful Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. And as I said before, we're having kind of a special compost what's in your soil show today. So later on, question of the week will be about, can you have too much organic matter in your soil? But now it is time to discuss Compost Awareness Week, International Compost Awareness Week, with my special guests. They are here from Laurel Valley Soils, which is a bulk supplier of things like mushroom soil and topsoil in the Kennett Square area, famed for both its mushroom farms and for being the home of Longwood Gardens. So uh, let's get started with Suzanne, Suzanne Longacre. Are you, um, you know, this area is lousy with long acres, Suzanne. Are you related to the ice cream people or the plumbing people? I wish, I wish. Um, although I have to say I'm proud to be related to a pastor from uh, Bethlehem, a longtime pastor at St. Stephen's Church. So um, that ranks right up there with ice cream, right? No, no. I want the free ice cream, quite honestly. I think my kids would say that, too. Yeah. Okay, so International Compost Awareness Week is coming up. I think it's May 5th to the 13th. Yes. And this has been going on for quite a while. I mean, some people may not, oh, my God, compost gets its own week. I mean, but mm -hmm. soils are everything. Compost is everything. And uh, this, is put, it, this is put on by a group called, is it the Composting Council? Yes, it's the U.S. Composting Council, correct. Yeah. And you guys are member, Laurel Valley is are members or supporters or whatever. I saw your logo up there on the uh, on the page. 
Yes, yes, we've been a longtime supporter of the Composting Council, um, and they sponsor the STA uh, certification for compost. Um, STA? Yes. Which means? Seal of Testing Assurance. Oh, yes. Seal of Testing Assurance. Yes. Okay, like the good <laughs> housekeeping seal yeah. for dirt. Exactly, okay. exactly. Um, and we are a member, and um, member companies um, have their compost tested uh, several times a year um, to strict standards. And so well, you can always be uh, confident about your compost by asking your supplier for their STA certificate. Okay. I always tell people when they're buying bulk compost to ask for the paper. Yes. Yep. You know, the analysis of what's in it and everything. Mm -hmm. Jake uh, Chalfin, you yep. are the soil man, right? <laughs> You're the guy who knows what all these different things are and where they come from and how best to utilize them. Mm -hmm. uh, you've worked at Laurel Valley for quite a while now, right? About, about 15 years. About 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I understand you had a little something drop into your life recently? Uh, five, I have a five and a half month old son. Congratulations. Named Angus. Yeah. Angus? Yeah. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Does he look like a side of beef? He, 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 he looks like a little miniature Viking at the moment. Okay. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. Well, uh, you were kind enough to bring us samples of some of the bulk soils that your company supplies. Now, you are wholesale only or wholesale mostly? Uh, wholesale only. Our minimum delivery is in a triaxle dump truck, which is about 25 to 30 cubic yards. Right. So that was what I started out with when I first mm -hmm. built my raised bed garden. I had 16 tons of mushroom soil dropped off for a garden that was a thousand square feet, oh, I was I was never very good at math. Has your back recovered? <laughs> um, you know, the interesting thing is when I saw how big it. I, first, I'm a guy, right? So yeah. I figured I just have to spread it out. It just you know because it's all in one place. You know, the size of two double wide semis on top of each other. Um, but as I climbed to the top, I realized two things: one, I'm looking in my second floor bedroom oh, window. Boy. And two, my feet are on fire. Uh -huh. That's when I learned the difference between fresh mushroom yeah, soil yeah. and aged mushroom soil. Yeah. So there's no better way to, to start. We've got, um, you brought us a sample of fresh yeah. mushroom soil. There we go. Mm. You know, it doesn't smell overly strong. So that's what's It's not really hot. Let me, let me dirty up my beautiful white napkin here. Oh, this looks nice, doesn't it? Okay, so tell us, uh, this is straight from the farm, right? Yes, it is. So what's interesting about mushroom compost, it's a very unique compost designed specifically as, for the growing medium of mushrooms. And if you think about mushrooms in their natural habitat in the wild, they're, they're not always just growing in the ground like, like a typical plant. A lot of times they're growing in a rotten, rotten log. And so they, if you think about it that way, they like their food only half decomposed. So we designed a compost around their diet. So this material is only, it's only a half composted compost. Right, so this contains fresh horse manure or composted horse manure? Uh, composted <laughs> horse manure. Uh, and that's a, sort of a misnomer about mushroom compost. It's actually 90% hay and straw. There is some horse manure, there is a little poultry litter, but it's mostly hay and straw. The, the mushrooms like the lignin and the cellulose in the, uh, the, the the straw material. But there's enough uh, manure in there, so to speak, to, to make a compost. Right, you, you have to have the right carbon to nitrogen ratio mm -hmm. to, and moisture to, and oxygen to kind of kick off that biological process that uh, heats the compost up and it allows it to break down. Now, when somebody buys a truckload of fresh mushroom soil, like a, a nursery, to then dole yeah. it out in smaller amounts, um, they're gonna let it sit for a while. Because mushroom compost is only half composted, if it's allowed to sit in a pile for a while, it starts to heat up and then it goes, it runs out of oxygen and quickly mm -hmm. goes anaerobic. And that's when you get a really stinky kind of uh, oh, okay. messy material. So you want it fresh or you want it fully aged. You want to avoid it in the middle process. And I guess to be professionally aged, it has to be turned then to Correct. keep the air inside. Exactly, so there's two ways to break organic material down. That's anaerobically, uh, without oxygen, rotting or aerobically with oxygen, which would be in a windrow right. uh, that you would turn with a machine to reintroduce that oxygen every time it gets depleted. 
And, and that's really the way you, the, the appropriate way to do it. So when we're done, when it's all nicely aged, yeah. uh, what's the ballpark figure for uh, the NPK and the pH on this? Yep. So every, every compost is different. Um, our compost is about a 223 NPK. Okay, that's yeah. nice. What's the pH very, very generally? Balanced. The, the pH is about, it's neutral-ish. It's mm -hmm. about 7 to 7.2. Okay. Yeah. Um, the fresh mushroom compost is used primarily in agriculture. Um, we have uh, a lot of farmers in the Kennett area who um, will spread it on their fields. Um, of course, this fall with the rain yeah. that we've had, it was a tough year for farmers to get out in their field without getting stuck. Um, so we're seeing a little bit more um, in the springtime. Um, but oh, yes. I see so much pent-up demand for every aspect of gardening now, thanks to last year. <laughs> yes. We, we, we want to get even. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's, I'm going to save that. Okay. Enriched topsoil. Now, this is one of your main products, right? Isn't yes. this, um, you know, this is what you're most likely to see at a garden center, Suze? Yes, yes. So, and the enriched topsoil is a combination of native soil and our uh, compost. The, uh, the soils in Southern Chester County are kind of a naturally sandy loam material. Oh, that's great. And so it, it's, it's lucky that we're there and we have that material to work with. And that, that, that combined with the compost makes an excellent uh, all-purpose all soil. What's the ratio here? Well, the, um, the by volume ratio, the mix ratio, you know, we're probably adding around 40% compost. Now, if you send that to a lab... And when and, you say compost... Yes. Fresh mushroom soil, aged mushroom aged soil? Aged mushroom soil. Okay. So we, we, take, we age the compost, then we blend it with the soil, and then we screen it. If you send that soil to a lab and have it analyzed, uh, Penn State or wherever, mm -hmm. um, it would come back with an, uh, or it's, those results are all measured in, uh, by weight. Right. Uh, so it would be about a, about a 12, 10 to 12% um, organic matter content by weight. Right. As opposed to a, a virgin soil that you might just find out in the field, which might have an organic matter content of anywhere from uh, 0.5 to 3.5, which and it's what's the organic low. matter content of the compost alone? So um, that's a good question. It's, it's important for people to know that compost is not 100% organic matter. Um, really, hardly anything is. Right. Um, there's mineral parts to I it. I am. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're... No roundup uh, in me. Mushroom compost, of all the composts out there in the marketplace, has one of the higher organic matter contents, and we're about 30 to 40% organic matter by weight. Okay, that's great. And I have to say that right now, I'm in the process of redoing my raised bed garden. We'll be showing uh, pictures on, on upcoming shows. And I'm using the mix. Yes. I'm using the enriched yeah. topsoil. You, you always want to plant into a blend. You would never want to plant into pure compost. Yeah. Right, I did that first time. <laughs> I had no choice. Uh, and I want to tell people who are listening on the radio or the podcast, um, this is worth your while to go to youbetyourgarden.org and watch the video of this interview so you can see what the different soils look like. Um, now, here's, here's your, this is something you guys are really proud of, right, Suze? The, yes, the, the Omri premium. Listed. Yep, and what you're seeing right there is our Omri Listed premium compost. Oh, look how black that is, baby doll. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. We call it black gold, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Now, windrows, I've been at these uh, composting facilities. People yeah. don't understand. A windrow can be as big as a football field. As long as a football field. Long yeah. as a football field. Yeah. And 10 feet high sometimes? Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Uh, you can't get too tall or else the material just kind of pancakes out. It also gets, the, if you build a windrow too big, it gets so heavy, it, it squishes its own oxygen out of it. And you mm -hmm. need, yeah, you need sure. oxygen, so you don't want to build it so big that it, it can't support pore space for the oxygen. Right, and the color. I mean, yeah. the color is Beautiful. just so perfect. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is what you want. This what, is black as the ace what, of spades. What, what I tell people is, you know, uh, a really good mature compost, you, if you look at it and you're not in the business, you shouldn't be able to tell what it was made from. Right. It should be so broken down if it was leaves or, or manure or, or mushroom compost, a fully matured compost, you shouldn't be able to tell what the initial ingredients were. And um, is there any difference in the NPK numbers, the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium? It's, it's maybe just a hair lower, but it's all pretty stable. So it's, 
they're all like organic based, slow release um, uh, nutrients. So they're not very soluble. So they do stick around. See, I make a lot of my own compost at home, mostly from shredded fall leaves, because I live in the woods, yep. and coffee grounds uh, for nitrogen. And when it's done, it looks like this. It's that beautiful black color. Yeah. I love uh, we, it. We have some customers that like to uh, top dress their, um, so if a golf course put it on their fairway, for example, they can get quicker green up in the, in the summer from the, uh, the solar uh, draw that it creates. Oh, compost, finished compost the is the best lawn food. Yeah. You know, it actually improves the structure of the soil underneath the grass roots right. without you disturbing the grass itself. It's like a miracle. Now, Suze, this is an oddball thing here. Rain garden soil. Rain garden soil. So now, you'll how much of this do you guys move? So that is certainly not um, as big of a, a product as our uh, premium compost or our rich topsoil, but we're definitely seeing it trending up um, because people are starting to understand um, the effects of stormwater runoff, mm -hmm. rain runoff, um, and realize that there are parts of their yards that um, could really benefit from a rain garden, mm -hmm. um, especially if you live in an area that's very hilly. Um, you can put in a rain garden and they can be very, very beautiful. They can be so functional, but also beautiful that you don't even realize that they're performing such a great function. Right, um, which is they're slowing down the rainwater as it comes and there's different plants on the outskirts, there's plants that like it dry because that area gets dry. In the middle, you've got the marginal plants that like to live just outside of a bog or a lake or a stream or something. And then in the middle, you've got plants that grow right in the water. Yeah, it's beautiful and very functional. And, and using the native plants that are accustomed to the climate here is, is a wonderful thing as well for the pollinators and and the habitat. Oh, forget that. Hey kids, you can put carnivorous plants <laughs> in the middle on that marginal area, pitcher plants that eat your insect pests for you. <laughs> Jake, how do you make this? What's the recipe? Well, there's uh, a lot of different blends out there in the marketplace. Uh, just a typical generic middle of the road blend would be like 50% sand, 25% soil, and 25% compost. But I've seen every variation of that ratio Sometimes there's mulch, sometimes there's um, other ingredients as well. So, I mean, this would be superb for growing um, a drama queen root crop like carrots, mm, you know, that often, yeah. you know, they fork or they get yeah. distorted trying yeah. to grow in clay soil. This would give you beautiful long straight carrots, probably more potatoes. I hadn't even thought of that, but it certainly would, yeah. That's why I get the big money, Jake. <laughs> yeah. So, last question. I'll start with you, Suze. What are you doing for National Compost Awareness Week? Are you oh. baking a cake, sending out cards? <laughs> All of the above and more. So we're really excited about um, ICAW. And, um, oh, will you we... stop using the... <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag yeah. ICAW2019. Okay. Um, so it's a really big event at Laurel Valley because compost not only is the heart compost of our... Compost are you. Exactly. We are compost. And it's not only the heart of our products, it's the heart of our company. So we have many events planned for the week. Um, and all of the proceeds for all of our events go to the Horticultural Society City Harvest Program. And this is our third year. Um, and over the past two years, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, after the past two years, uh, we've raised over $6,000 for City Harvest, and we're hoping to increase that this year. And we will be at the Rittenhouse Flower Market on May 4th and 5th. And you can come and bring, it's BYOB, bring your own buckets or your bag. <laughs> and you can get compost, and 100% of the sales will go to City Harvest. Uh, so please come out and see us. So fill up your five-gallon bucket, yep. right? Exactly. Take your take your garden growler. Exactly. To, and is that in Rittenhouse Square? Yes, that will be in Rittenhouse Square. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. All right. Thank you guys for coming out to the studio today. Thanks, this is thank you so it's much. It's been wonderful. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank it's you. It's fun.
Well, through the magic of television, here I am back in our regular studio to announce that I will appear on Saturday, May 5th at 1 and 3 o'clock at the Town Center Garden Event in Reston, Virginia. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with a tale of when too many inputs may be spoiling the broth and what soil tests can't tell you. Plus your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Studio Hopping. Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week. Can you have too much organic matter in your soil? But before that, a couple more of your organic phone calls at 833-727-95 and 88. Christy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you for making it, Christy. Where are you? I'm in Bahama, North Carolina. Oh, okay. Uh, where is that in in NC? Are you near the water? Uh, no, I'm actually central. I'm just north of Durham. I'm still in Durham County. Oh, okay. Very good. What can we do for Christy in NC? Well, in North Carolina, there's a lot of beautiful crepe myrtles, and then there's also a lot of butchered crepe myrtles. Uh-huh. And I would like to buy a couple specimens that aren't too tall and not too small, just kind of, you know, the Goldilocks, um, that I can start from a nursery and grow them so they're actually nice and graceful and not chopped in half looking, and I don't know exactly how to do that, how to select them, all that kind of thing. Unfortunately, years and years ago, um, some garden writer or extension agent um, made the mistake of telling people that you could cut crepe myrtle back to a stump, and it would regrow, which is true. Now, just because it can doesn't mean you should do that. But people took that advice to heart. They're thinking they can, you know, turn a tree into a sapling somehow. And the result has been called crepe murder. And because every time they would cut this thing back to the ground, the stump would stay the same size, but the shoots that came out would be very small. So you wind up with like a baby kitten growing out of an elephant's foot. And it is a terrible look and it can't be redeemed. But if you start correctly and you have the plant your entire time and nobody else takes a whack at it, you can achieve a wonderful result, which is when the Crepe myrtle gets to be the size you want. You take off the amount that it grew the previous year. So you're going to get dwarf crepe myrtles? Okay. Are you? Because you said you you don't want them to get Um, too huge. Yeah, I'm really not sure what size. I don't want them to get up to, like, you know, 30 feet tall. Um, But I've seen ones that are, like, about the size of... um, a human or something, and I'd like them to be a little bit taller, so just kind of like a miniature tree, I don't know, 15 feet? Okay. Well, uh, that, that'll that simply require you to do some ladder work. Are you okay with that? Uh, my husband is. <laughs> okay, there we go. Honeydew. So at the beginning of this, first, obviously, you're going to let it grow for a couple of years. Now, during those first couple of years, you're not going to do any actual removal of much wood but in the spring about two to three weeks after the new growth appears and you know they're they're the last thing to bloom in the landscape you want to give it a little haircut just take a couple of inches off of the top or off of each stem if it's a multi-branched version of the plant 
And then once it starts to approach the height that you want, let's say you want it to be 15 feet. Once it gets to be 12 feet, again, in the spring, the only time to prune crepe myrtle is in the spring, shortly after it begins growing again, then you start taking six inches to a foot off. And it'll grow nice and normal. It'll look all, uh, all not irregular. It'll look like it's one normal plant. And then uh, over the next couple of years, take off as much as a f- as much as a foot. And once it gets to the height you want, the following spring you cut it back to that height. Obviously, if you want the final height to be 15 feet then you cut it back to 12 feet in the spring, and it'll grow back to 15 feet. You can do that year after year. It will never be a big plant with small shoots coming out of it, and it's just up to you to decide what the final height will be. But the rule of thumb is every spring, cut back the same amount the plant grew the year before. Essentially keeping it at exactly the same height year after year with a spring pruning. Okay. So how do you keep it so it only has like three to five major trunks at the base? Well, first you can buy a tree form. You don't have to buy the the shrub form. Um, but okay. It, but if you want, and, and typically the shrub form does want to have quite a few uh, branches coming up, but uh, you, you would just cut those off at the soil line. But I think... Okay. I, think, I think you'd be wasting most of the plant. I think if that if that's what you want, you want to look at a dwarf tree type of crepe myrtle. Uh, it sounds more like that's the that's the structure you want. Okay. All right. All right. Is there anything uh, I need to know as far as the soil goes or nutrients that they need? Um, how, um, how well you're inland. Is your soil really your soil isn't really sandy or anything, is it? No, it's it's clay and definitely acidic. I think it was like high fives, um, okay. low sixes. Okay, so here's what you do. When you're ready to plant the tree, you dig the hole, and you make sure you plant the tree high, not low. You want to see okay. you want to see the root flare above ground. If it looks like a lollipop, you planted it um, too deep, and it will not be long-lived. Then... You want to fill the hole back up with the soil you removed. But in this case, you're going to add something to the planting hole. Do you know anybody who burns wood over the winter, has a wood-burning stove, anything like that? I think so, yeah. Um, You want to mix in wood ash. You want to mix a couple of cups of their uh, hardwood ash into the planting hole mixed with the soil. And then put a little more hardwood ash on the surface of the soil around the tree and then cover that with an inch of compost and the tree will thrive like nobody's business. Okay. All right. Awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Good luck, Christy. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. As promised, it's time for the question of the week. Can you have too much organic matter in your soil? Henrietta in Pennington, New Jersey writes, My husband planted a large bed of 100 roses along our driveway 25 years ago. Initially, he started off with screen topsoil and shredded pine bark mulch. He fertilized with Vigoro and Rose Tone. When planting new bushes, he mixed mushroom compost into the planting hole. At my urging a few years back, he began mulching with leaf compost, and then two years ago, he had the soil tested. The results showed that there was too much organic matter, 28% rather than the recommended 10%. Phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and calcium were also off the charts. However, nitrogen was needed, so he decided to put down dried blood meal and corn gluten meal to try to correct the nitrogen deficiency. His question is what, if anything, should he do about having too much organic matter? Should he mix sand or clay soil into the beds? Should he ever use compost mulch again? The roses look fine and healthy. Well, it's clear that your husband needs a new hobby, Henrietta. 
woodworking, making big ships in little bottles, trying to watch every Major League Baseball game for an entire season, restoring an abandoned red 68 Chevy Impala convertible with black leather upholstery and an eight-track tape player that's been stuck on side six of Inagata DeVita since Gerald Ford was president. Anything other than messing with those poor roses anymore. Take away lesson number one here. Trust your plants more than a soil test. If the roses look healthy and are blooming nicely, everything is fine, and adding more kitchen sinks to this mix could easily send the poor plants into decline. Now, let's look at these issues of inputs in depth, or at least as deep as I ever get. Quote, screened topsoil, mulched with shredded pine bark mulch, fertilized with Vigoro and Rose Tone and mushroom compost in the planting hole. Now, screen topsoil is very variable in quality. Vigoro is not a specific product. It's a company that makes chemical fertilizers. Rose Tone is a natural fertilizer from Espoma, the people who make Holly Tone. Fresh mushroom compost is too hot to use, especially down in a planting hole. Aged mushroom compost is better, but Takeaway number two, there's never any reason to, quote, improve the soil in the planting hole. You want the roots of your plants to spread out to the surrounding crappy soil. If they have the option of staying inside a nice warm embryo of improved soil, they may choose to do just that. And these are the kind of plants you can just lift right up out of the ground because their roots are more shallow than I am. Although it would seem counterintuitive, you should backfill the hole with the same lousy soil you dug up to make the hole. Any improvement should be applied to the surface, especially with roses, which greatly appreciate that mulch of disease-preventing compost at the soil surface. So that was a great recommendation. Okay, let's add up the score. It's hard to imagine topsoil improving the organic matter content very much. Mushroom soil would, but it sounds like Hubby didn't use all that much. Both the chemical and natural fertilizers would have added nitrogen and other nutrients, but not organic matter. That just comes from bulk material like compost and composted manures. Round two, we continue to quote Henrietta. At my urging, he began mulching with leaf compost and then had the soil tested. The results showed that there was too much organic matter, 28% rather than the recommended 10, and that phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and calcium were also off the charts. However, nitrogen was needed, so he decided to put down some dried blood meal and corn gluten meal. Well, I want your husband to take me out to dinner and pick up the check. I'm going to wear bulky clothes stuffed with Ziplocs and keep ordering racks of lamb, lobster tail, caviar, and truffles. The leaf compost is, of course, a great idea. It is the absolute right thing to do, especially with roses, and would raise the organic matter content of the soil considerably. And with no apologies to the soil test lab, there is no such thing as too much organic matter in your soil. It's like saying your home is lacking in lead and asbestos. The excesses of potassium, magnesium, and phosphorus are likely due to the use of those fertilizers. Drop the Vigoro and have a lighter hand with the rose tone. And finally, the phrase nitrogen was needed points to a very poor quality soil test. Nitrogen is ephemeral. It constantly re-enters the atmosphere, and soil measurements one day can mean nothing the following week. Plus, an excess of nitrogen is bad for flowering plants like roses. Nitrogen makes plants grow bigger, but too much can inhibit the development of flowers and fruits. Blood meal and corn gluten meal are pretty much pure nitrogen, so back off the blood meal completely and go easy on the corn gluten. The bottom line here is that most labs don't even test for nitrogen. It is just too ephemeral. Instead, they will tell you the organic matter content of your soil, which in your husband's case is exceptional. Most organic farms would rave if they hit 28%. Well, that sure was an interesting look at a rose grower with too much time on his hands now, wasn't it? Luckily for those of you who wish to read it over in detail, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, 
which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week. Yikes, my producer is threatening to confiscate my compost if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-PBSWLVT. That's 1-833-727-9588. Or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at YBYG at WLVT.org. Please, 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 please include your location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of recent shows, and our internationally renowned podcast, all at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show and an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by PBS 39 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page with new postings every day. Davia Minnick posts the phones. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editors are Concrete Kelly Hurd and Judicious Jake Boyer. Our floor manager, John DeCensis, is full of nitrogen. Harassed and harried Javier Diaz is our director, just might be our producer, and has an excellent organic matter content. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is Jaunty Jim McDonald. Our chief techno officer is Andy Cummins. Zach the Tack is in the house. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, is so full of organic matter that he can't be our executive producer. We would have him tested for micronutrients, but he won't stand still long enough because he is late for a meeting. And I'm your host, micronutritional Mike McGrath. Call me anything but full of ammonium nitrate, and I'll see you again next week.